Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut. Here's what's coming up on today's show. Welcome to episode 84 of the Healthy Gut Podcast. Today I'm with Dr. Alison Seebecker and we're talking all about a methane overgrowth in the small intestine. Now, if you haven't already listened to it, I do recommend you go back the previous episode and listen to our first part of this two-part series on hydrogen-dominant SIBO. When Dr. Alison Seebecker and I recorded this interview, it was prior to the new classification of methane SIBO, and it is now being referred to as intestinal methanogen overgrowth, or IMO, rather than SIBO methane dominant, um, or a SIBO with a methane dominant presentation. And the reason for this is that there has been uh, more research done, there's ever-evolving research on SIBO and overgrowth in the small intestine. But the things that create methane gas are actually not bacteria, they're methanogens. So they're not true in representing the B in SIBO, which is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, but instead they belong to the domain archaea. They also might be overgrown in the colon, not just the small intestine. And so it's because of this that this new term has been proposed, such as IMO, for methanogen or methane dominant overgrowth in the small intestine rather than SIBO. So please bear with with us in this interview. We did record it prior to the change in the way we describe uh, methane overgrowth in the small intestine. But every time we talk about methane, SIBO, just remember we're actually now talking about IMO. If you would like a transcription from today's episode, don't forget that you can get that for free if you're a member of the Healthy Gut Podcast. All you need to do to join is sign up at thehealthygut.com forward slash podcast. It's free to join, which is fantastic. And you will get an email with the transcription sent to you every week uh, when there is a new podcast released. So enjoy today's episode with Dr. Alison Seebecker as we talk about intestinal methanogen overgrowth, formerly known as methane dominant SIBO. Welcome back to the Healthy Gut Podcast, Dr. Alison Seebecker. Hello, I'm happy to be back. And today we're going to be talking about methane-dominant SIBO. And I encourage you to go and listen to the episode that I released last week 
which was all around hydrogen dominant SIBO with Dr. Alison Seebecker. It's a great foundation piece. And even if you don't have hydrogen dominant SIBO, we covered so much useful information in there that I think it's really worthwhile going and taking a listen to. So pause this recording and uh, go and listen to that one if you haven't already. Uh, But today we're talking about methane SIBO, what it is, what the difference is between hydrogen SIBO and what we can look for as a symptom picture. So let's start off with what is methane dominant SIBO and and why is it different to hydrogen? Right, so just very briefly, we have these three different gases that we have in SIBO, uh, hydrogen, methane, and hydrogen sulfide. And these correlate with different symptoms. So the methane gas correlates with constipation. And it isn't just that it correlates. It's actually been shown to directly cause constipation. It's not like, well, they're associated, but we don't know why. We we know for sure it causes constipation. I believe, if I'm remembering the study correctly, it was like a 69% or a 70% slowing of the transit, uh, lengthening and prolonging of the transit when methane was infused into the small intestine of test animals. So we know that it interacts with the uh, nerves and the neurology in the in the intestinal lining, and it, it's like a gazotransmitter. It has an effect. It's not inert. So uh, now there's a bigger question here about what is it, because the bugs, so to speak, the bacteria, are different than the hydrogen and the hydrogen sulfide. And these are actually not bacteria. Technically, they're archaea. Some people call them archaea. And they're just a different sort of microbe. (laughs) And the main one that has been shown to be living in in humans, in our intestines, causing constipation is M. smithii, Methanobrevibacter smithii. So it's even been narrowed down to sort of one organism, and and it's an archaea, not a bacteria. So, uh, because of, of that, the name for methane SIBO has been proposed to be changed, and now it's being referred to by Dr. Pimentel and some of his colleagues as methanogen bloom instead of SIBO methane type. It's still the same thing we've always known it to be. They're giving it a new name now. And part of this is because it's not bacteria, so it doesn't fit into the like bacterial overgrowth. It's an archaea. And also, the, the word bloom is a, a word that means one species that is overgrowing, uh, but maybe even in its own organ where it normally resides. And we know that the methanogens can reside in the small or large intestine or both. So again, then it's not exactly localized per se in every case to the small intestine. So it doesn't quite fit the SIBO name. So, uh, and then bloom, you know, means it's just this one organism that's blooming or overgrowing. So there's all these different reasons. And the last one is that um, the term overgrowth for the gastroenterologists, that term is associated with a small intestine in their minds, even though for the rest of us it isn't, but it is for them. So it's just a problem in the terminology for them. So for all these reasons, that is the new name. So, uh, or the proposed new name. I haven't quite caught on with it yet. (laughs) So I still say, you know, SIBO methane type. But what, what I like about this is that for quite some time, 
Dr. Pimentel has been saying it's a different disease, and it's because it's got a different organism causing it. It's got its, he believes it has a different cause. I mean, we can see from the studies that the majority cause, which we actually, we did not talk about in our hydrogen uh, diarrhea talk, but the majority cause in that circumstance is food poisoning, but it is not, it is not the main cause. And we don't know what the main cause is in methane type SIBO or methanogen bloom. So it's just a little different and it's good to think of it in a different way. And the real reason why I, I like this perception shift is because we've always known that it requires a different treatment and is actually a little harder to treat. And now that all makes sense. When, when we realized, okay, they're not actually even bacteria, they're archaea. Now you know why you need a different sort of treatment approach and why the whole thing looks a little different. What are the symptoms for someone that has this methanogen bloom? Well, primarily it's going to be constipation and that sets it apart. But you just would also have all the regular SIBO symptoms, which are awful. So abdominal bloating or distension, pain or discomfort. Uh, you can have, of course, the main thing is that any of the symptoms come from eating or drinking. And then you can have food reactions in particular to carbohydrates. That's what SIBO sort of defines SIBO, and um, which I'm still calling it, as you see. See, I'm not changing my language. <laughs> it's the same thing, just a new name, right? But So uh, then uh, those reactions might not just be digestive, but also like headaches or any sort of s- systemic non-digestive symptom that comes from eating can be related to this. Um, and that's because it, uh, SIBO can cause leaky gut. So, And then we have acid reflux. We have um, burping and farting, uh, nausea, a feeling that food sits in the stomach and won't go down. Uh, very common is anxiety, brain fog, and depression, with anxiety being more common than depression. Very common. And so about these symptoms, there is a grouping of symptoms that is a bit more typical to methane. And that would be the constipation with uh, acid reflux, burping, and nausea. And that is because all of those are sort of like backward-upward symptoms, like things are coming back up, (laughs) Uh, or you feel as if they are. And they're certainly not moving down. And so, but the backward-upward symptoms, nausea, acid reflux, and um, what was the other one I said? (laughs) I just forgot (laughs) Burping and Thank farting. Thank you. Burping. It's burping. Burping more so than farting. That is like if somebody just reports those to you and they're constipated, that would be like classic methane symptoms. Not everyone's going to have that. And, you know, not everyone has acid reflux with methane, but that is classic. And we think it's because in studies it was shown that meth- um, methane gas actually creates a little bit of reverse motion hyper motility in the small intestine. So there's a little bit of backward motion going on there, just a, just a tad anyway. Are you seeing anything with the symptoms uh, correlating with weight gain or loss with people with um, this methanogen bloom? I'm trying to change right, my I know language, it's hard. but it is hard after calling it methane-dominant SIBO for all those, all those years. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the studies that Dr. Pimentel and his team have done have shown that it's associated with weight gain um, and obesity, but clinically, I don't see it very often that way. So I don't know why for me and, and actually several of my colleagues, many of my colleagues, there's a bit of a disconnect between what the research shows and what we see clinically. I'm not sure what to make of that, but it is, it's important to know for anyone who finds that 
you know, the typical, I didn't even talk about this in the last episode either, but <laughs> the typical uh, circumstance with weight and SIBO is that you're underweight or you, and, or, and, or you've lo- you're losing weight and you find it hard to put weight on. So that's typical. But it's important to know if you're the type that is kind of gaining weight and finding you can't lose weight, there is a, a research association with methane and that type of SIBO. I see with my coaching clients that the general picture is people who are underweight can't gain weight, find it very difficult to. Uh, but I am that, that other category of people where I gain weight incredibly easily. I find it very difficult to lose weight. It's frustrating because I'm not going out and eating McDonald's every day and, you know, and, you know still gaining such um, huge amounts of weight sometimes. And interestingly enough for me, most my most recent breath test showed methane was present for the first time. Uh, for the for the last previous four years, it was always just hydrogen, and now methane has raised its little head and it said, "Hello, I'm here." <laughs> <laughs> That's really interesting for me to see that, and I'll be interested to see next time I do a breath test what's happened, whether the methane has stayed or gone, and and just on that piece. What do you see? Like, is it common for people to have both gases or is it more common for people to generally have one over the other? I see most people have both. That is the the most common presentation that I see is both gases are there. And then, you know, they may have a mixed picture, but it may be that they're just diarrhea or constipation. And I think it just depends on what gas is sort of predominating. Sometimes sometimes that correlates with what we see on the breath test. And sometimes it doesn't. But I don't really worry about it. I treat it all the same anyway. What about if there's a person that has um, methane-dominant SIBO as diagnosed by their SIBO breath test, but symptomatically they're different. They might have diarrhea instead of constipation. What might be happening in that picture? We were just talking about this. <laughs> so uh, this has been a big question and conundrum for the longest time because there's always been this subset. I mean, you if you're if you're practicing, you've probably seen it. It happens. Uh, Dr. Pimentel gave me a thought on this just recently, I, and I just shared it in my quarterly newsletter, uh, which you can sign up for on SIBO Info if you don't receive it. It's free. Uh, and that was that that could be hydrogen sulfide. So hydrogen sulfide gas, we haven't been able to test for that yet. The technology has just, just been developed and um, coming, but all along we have not been able to test for that gas. So we wouldn't know if it was there. And we would only know if we saw flatline tests, but then uh, what we've learned now from the research that's being done is that that's only a, a fairly small percent that have the flat line. So there really was this gas there that we just couldn't see. So probably that's what that is, is there's hydrogen sulfide. And hydrogen sulfide gas is associated with diarrhea in the SIBO studies that have been done so far, which are only a year old now. And so probably that gas is there at high enough level to compete with and outcompete the methane and it's causing diarrhea. So you're seeing both gases, but you got the diarrhea. Or you're not seeing both, sorry, you're not seeing them, but they're there. (laughs) 
Let's talk about treatment options for methane SIBO. So what how what is in our kit bag to treat it, given that we know it's archaea, it's a little trickier to treat than hydrogen SIBO. Um, what are we looking at for, for treating that? Well, we have our, our three main antibacterial treatments, pharmaceutical antibiotics, herbal antibiotics, and elemental diet. And so I'll just go through them. So for the pharmaceutical antibiotics, the difference here is we need double antibiotic therapy. So rifaximin is the, is the antibiotic we use for all cases of SIBO. But when you have methane type, you need to add a second antibiotic to it. And that is either going to be neomycin or metronidazole. The main study was done on neomycin, and it showed effectiveness, you know, much more effective than if you just used rifaximin or if you just used neomycin. Uh, there have been studies done with just metronidazole and also much lower effectiveness. There was never a study done on rifaximin and metronidazole, but uh, clinically, we, we've, it's just, we've always known we can do that. Dr. Pimentel let us all know that, and we've all been doing it, and we see, we see it. So those are the two options. And so you take them together. You swallow them at the same time, and you just do it for the same length of time. So that's key, and it's a huge missing piece. If a doctor was not educated on this, they might just give rifaximin, and it's uh, more often than not not as effective. Now, I have talked to some gastroenterologists who said, I always find that it works. This was years ago, and I don't know. I guess they just had a handful that that worked for, but I see failure after failure of that, and that's why they come to me, because they were given rifaximin only, and it didn't do the job. We just repeat it, add in the neomycin or the metronidazole, and then they think I'm like a miracle worker, and it's just simply that that is the standard of care, and the other doc didn't didn't know that yet. So for herbal antibiotics, uh, we use the same uh, core herbs that we use for the hydrogen type, which is the berberine herbs. We went over this more extensively in the other recording. So berberine herbs, um, oregano, and neem. But then, like the pharmaceutical situation, we have to take one of those and now add in an herb that is more effective for the methane. And so that would be allicin, which is the antibiotic aspect of garlic, one of the main antibiotic aspects of garlic. And we choose that instead of whole garlic or, or garlic oil or something like that, like you know crushed garlic in a pill, because garlic is highly fermentable, it has high FOS, and it can bother a lot of people, uh, really aggravate their symptoms. So we prefer to use the more purified out allicin, and we find that's really well tolerated. The one that we've been using all these years is called Alimed. Um, it has three levels of potency, Alimax, Ultra. And Ali Med is the top. We typically use that at six pills a day. We started using that at three pills a day, and then it was actually Dr. Keller who said, I think we should go to six, and uh, we got much better effect. So we always get better effect when we go higher, but then you're paying more and you know you might react more. So the other one that we know that can be helpful is the product that's called Atrantil, and it's a combination of red corbracho bark, conquer tree, which is horse chestnut and then a little bit of peppermint leaf. And this is working, it has some um, direct antimicrobial ability, but the main thrust of it is to actually inhibit the production of methane gas, like inhibit its formation. So it's got a different principle behind it. And that's been out a few years, had some studies done it. I've seen, you know, good results. And then I've also seen people not responding because that's what I see with everything. It doesn't matter who I see and what I give. Some people works great what you give and some people doesn't, right? What I, I mean, anything I give, so um, anything we use. So one of those two, uh, the, the standard would be 
the allicin. So, for example, you would do berberine in the normal dosage you would do, plus allicin, or you would do oregano plus allicin, or neem plus allicin, or you could use just a trontile, or you could substitute the atrontil in in place of the allicin. So that's what we do for the herbs. And by the way, um, I didn't clarify this also in the other one, but the typical time frame is two to three weeks for pharmaceuticals, but it's four to six weeks for herbals. I don't tend to go too much farther than six weeks because at least in the patients I see, they tend to become tolerant to what I'm giving usually around six weeks. Of course there are exceptions. And I've certainly seen some people that are still having an herb be effective for them taken for months and months. But it's just so common of a pattern for me that um, I, I don't go too much longer. So that's the typical treatment course is, you know, maybe four to six weeks. Now we have elemental diet. Elemental diet is very effective for the methane type SIBO, just as it is for the hydrogen. It's, it's very, very effective across the board. <laughs> it's just amazing. Um, and yet, you know, there's always times where whatever we give just wasn't a match. It didn't quite work. But um, elemental diet's another fabulous one. And there's all different ways you can do that. You can do homemade, which is the recipe. It's free on my site. And then there's various commercial ones that you can do, like Physician's Elemental Diet, um, Vivinex Plus, Neocate Junior. There's various ones. Can we take uh, uh, the pharmaceutical um, antibiotics and herbal antibiotics at the same time? Yeah. Some people, what they like to do is they'll take Rifaximin and Allicin because they don't want to take the neomycin or the metronidazole because the neomycin and metronidazole are typical antibiotics with typical concerns, safety concerns, side effects, and, you know, disruption of the microbiome, etc. So they'll do Rifaximin plus Allison, and you can also do Rifaximin plus Atrontil. You can try that as well. What about using things like prokinetics? So we there's a lot of talk <clears throat> in the SIBO communities just around how to get my bowels working, constipation, and I know this picture because it's been my struggle for life, is really debil- debilitating. It's got its own challenges as opposed to diarrhea, which has its own set of unique challenges. But when you have not gone to the toilet in days, sometimes a week or more, you just feel miserable. And uh, should we be taking a prokinetic right from the start of our treatment? Should we wait until we've done our our herbs or our antibiotics, what can we do to get the bowels opening? Okay, so the first thing I would say to do to help the bowels, and I'm going to come back to prokinetics, but the first thing would be an osmotic laxative. And I would recommend most everybody who has, really everybody who has constipation, you do need to treat the constipation. Uh, You do need to make sure you're going to the bathroom every day if at all possible. And, you know, that could be, you might have to work to see what's going to be the best effect. But my my number one favorite would be an osmotic laxative. So the ones would be, the options would be magnesium or vitamin C. Those are your sort of your classic ones. Another one would be potassium, actually, which I was just talking about recently at the SIBO Symposium. Uh, Magnesium, uh, there's two forms that are quite good, um, oxide or citrate. And if you're chronically constipated, you'll probably need around need around a thousand milligrams at night before bed is typically how we take it it's I think it's better if you sort of just take it all in one dose and then you might get your movement in the morning some people prefer to take it all spaced throughout the day you can do that too Um, but a key thing with magnesium it's it's 
it's a bit finicky, all osmotic laxatives are, where you need to space it away from food because otherwise the food will make you absorb it better into your body. What we're trying to do is let it sit in the intestines where it's a large molecule and then osmotically it will draw water towards itself from your body into your bowels. And so I would say two hours would be a good spacing from food. Now that can be tough at night. What if you had like a late dinner or what if you decide to have dessert or a snack and then now it's only been a half an hour and you're going to bed. This can matter. You know, you, you do need to put your mind to it and you'll see the difference in, in effect usually if you can wait the, the two hours. Um, vitamin C is another one a lot of people use. Um, that you need to use more of. So more, for I would say for chronic constipation, more from 5,000 milligrams and above. Maybe even going up to 10,000 milligrams. Depends on the circumstance. And the dosing's finicky with all of these. You know, you have to sort of go up and down and find what's right. And then something can throw it off. Like you ate dinner late and then you're like, why? Oh no, I'm more constipated. Why is it not working? And it's all these little things you got to figure out. But it's very important to get the bowels moving. And if an osmotic laxative doesn't work, and also, by the way, also you can use potassium, just take it as the label would recommend, then you would need to go to something more like a stimulant laxative. And hopefully that wouldn't be needed. But a prokinetic would be another option. And especially in combination with osmotic laxatives, there's studies that show that's a great combination. So um, yes, you can bring a prokinetic in right from the start whenever you would want. Prokinetics in general work a bit more so on the small intestine and even the stomach versus the large intestine, but some of them do have an effect on the large intestine. And I think all of them, if you got high enough dose, which might not be even all that much more, um, will start moving a person towards diarrhea um, so or bowel movements, you know, large intestine effect. So um, you can start right at the beginning, but I would start with magnesium first and see if that can take care of things. And um, you can bring the prokinetic in at any time, but for SIBO itself, not for the symptom of constipation, the time for the prokinetic is after you've done your treatment to try and hold any gains you've made, certainly after the test is negative, to be sure that you don't relapse or at least give you a chance to hold a bit longer. It would be great if you could just clarify the difference between prokinetic and laxative because I know some people get, you know, it can be a confusing thing where you think, well, both of them make me go to the toilet. Why are they different? Uh, so I think, as you just said, laxative is more around large intestinal bowel and bringing water in or stimulating the large bowel and prokinetic is more about stomach and small intestine. Is it as simple as that in terms of our classification? That's a good question, hey? I've got loads more just like this coming up after this break. We'll be back in a moment. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
So I think, as you just said, laxative is more around large intestinal bowel and bringing water in or stimulating the large bowel and prokinetic is more about stomach and small intestine is it as simple as that in terms pretty of much yeah pretty much um also the actual technical definition of a laxative is to stimulate a bowel movement that is not the definition of a prokinetic the definition of a prokinetic it's not concerned with bowel movements at all it's to uh, amplify and coordinate and the coordinates very important gastrointestinal motility um so like Typically, we're more interested in like the esophagus and the stomach and the stomach to the small intestine and the small intestine. It's not, you know, the the motility part is not necessarily associated with a bowel movement, even in the large intestine, actually. So because there can be, usually if somebody's all, their muscles are all like, you know, there's no motility, you get some motility going, they still might need the osmotic laxative to be able to have a bowel movement. There's all sorts of pieces here. So the, the key thing is that prokinetics, uh, it's only when you're taking them more so like throughout the day um, and at their more full dose that they can lead towards a bowel movement. And um, they don't often do that. They don't often lead to a bowel movement. So we're trying to actually get the small intestine to move there. And you may not feel anything. Although some people who are quite sensitive can feel like a cleaned out feeling that's not a bowel movement cleaned out feeling. It's a it's an upper middle middle feeling where like the bloating and everything. They 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 can I've sensed this. I had patients tell me this for years, and then I was able to sense it. It's a very specific and different feeling, and, and it's totally different than having a wonderful bowel movement. It's it's um it's this feeling like things are working correctly. For a SIBO person, you, you'll know it when you feel it. <laughs> but the, the important thing here with laxative and prokinetic is that the patient not think that their prokinetic is a laxative um, and that their laxative is prokinetic, particularly to not think that their laxative is a prokinetic because laxatives have no effect at all on to, you know, what we call laxatives on the small intestine motility zero. So the mistake would be, I don't need to take this prokinetic because I'm already taking magnesium. That would be like a real mistake because we need the prokinetic for a very specific reason for your SIBO having nothing to do with bowel movements. It's interesting you talk about that very specific feeling and I, I use magnesium daily. Um, I have my, I have a my magnesium hit at night just before bedtime and that is pretty much that guarantees me a morning bowel movement which is wonderful uh, I was just uh, telling you Alison about how my the prokinetic of choice Motul Pro has recently changed its formulation and it no longer works as well for me and I've run out and I'm not using a prokinetic at the moment and I really feel it I feel this you know, sense that it all is not quite as right as it once was when I had magnesium and my prokinetic support on board. So even though I'm going to the toilet daily with my magnesium, I still feel quite sluggish because my small intestine isn't getting the support it needs. So it's interesting your patients talk about that. I've always felt that, but I just never had put, I guess I'd never articulated it. I have felt it myself. It's it's an incredible thing when you have that that clean small intestine feeling <laughs> it feels so good to a SIBO patient when you get that you're like that's how you know the world is right <laughs> exactly now I just want to touch on something before we move on and you talked about in a, in the SIBO piece 
when we're just thinking about SIBO more so than trying to get movement and, and all of that food through that are just around the timing of the prokinetic. Can you just clarify if we're just thinking about SIBO right now and our SIBO treatment when we time that prokinetic use? Yes. Um, so you would want to be on your prokinetic shortly after finishing your antimicrobial treatment. And honestly, you could begin it right away. That, that would prob- probably be best for preventing relapse. However, whenever you take a new medicine, you could have a side effect or a reaction. So it can be a little complicated if you start it immediately because we're, we're trying to assess how you feel now that you're finishing your antimicrobial treatment, whatever it is. You finish that, it stopped. How, how are you doing? We, we need to assess those symptoms. And sometimes things change, you know, in, in the week or so after you finish your treatment and you might actually start to even feel better and better. We, we want to see these trends. So it's just, you have to be a little cautious if you start the prokinetic. What if you all of a sudden now have a reaction? Or what if by chance it happened to give you diarrhea? Um, and I've seen this time and time again. So it's, there's no real one right way and one right answer. And it, you might already have information in a certain patient's case or something to do it a certain way but I would say if you could just wait a few days like maybe two or three days you at least get a sense of something if you start uh, the prokinetic on day three and then all of a sudden you get a symptom it's pretty easy to see um, and you'll track it better Uh, but the thing is relapse or maybe we should call it backsliding between treatments is so common at about two weeks so if you wait a month even if you wait two weeks, that could be too long. So I, I don't really advise waiting more than about a week, just as a pattern, you know. Is there a reason why we shouldn't take a prokinetic during treatment when we're doing our herbs or antibiotics? There's really no reason um, that I can think of. You know, I guess one theoretical thought could be, well, might it push the medicine through your small intestine quicker and you don't quite absorb it and it doesn't really get to do its effect there in the small intestine and then it moves down into the large intestine. Honestly, I'm not really worried about that. I mean, people have brought that up and I think our, in our minds with our anxiety and SIBO, we could think these things, but uh, it's, it's more the answer is you just don't need to take a prokinetic when you're in the middle of, tr- of your treatment. You just don't need to, but you could, you know, if you didn't, it could save you some money, right? And then you start it right back up again. But if you're using it for some symptom relief, then you continue it. If you think it's helping you, it feels good, you take it. And also LDN, typically we titrate that dose up. That's a um, low-dose naltrexone. It's one of our prokinetics uh, that we use like a prokinetic. Anyway, since you had to titrate it up, uh, you don't want to be going on it and off it and on it and off it. So once you've gotten yourself on it, don't stop it during a treatment because then you're going to have to titrate back up again. That's annoying. Yeah, <laughs> that is annoying. Let's touch on diet. Should we be following a specific diet for methane-dominant SIBO? Uh, like, uh, is there anything around food that, that has a negative or detrimental impact to how we feel when we've got the methanogens living in our small intestine? I don't see any difference. I, I don't believe so. I think just all the SIBO diets are great for all the types of SIBO, well, particularly the methane and the hydrogen. So there is no advice that I have that I can see in my practice one way or the other of what you need to do with your diet when you have methane. I have, I've heard, you know, Dr. Pimentel with those studies having to do with weight gain, he has some thoughts on that. And I haven't seen those things bear out clinically, in, at least in my patient base. Uh, you know, with fiber, I think I've heard tell 
if I'm not mistaken, that Dr. Jacoby um, has been experimenting and, and recommending some fiber um, in various forms, and I'm sure very slow introduction with the meth methane cases. In my experience, I just see fiber really making it so much worse. If you start low and slow, then that, that can be fine. So, uh, but just like stepping back big picture, I just, I'm, I don't see any, anything different that is needed. My own experience is low and slow is what wins the race for me. And it's with my supplements. It's with my medications. It's my food reintroduction, everything. I can't go full steam ahead. I can't start at the full dose of anything. I can't start at the full serving of the food when I'm trying to bring in a new food. I have to go slow. And for me, it, it you know, it can be frustrating because I'm I'm a bull out of a china shop. I'm always a million miles an hour, but I get such better results and I feel so much better when I slow things down and I just give my body the chance to deal with it. And perhaps because I've got this impaired mobility piece that things are slow going through my system, that if I put too much in in one go, my it's just overload. My body doesn't have the chance to really process it. Yeah. And particularly with lentils and so interesting because for years I was vegetarian and I ate so many lentils and beans and I was so bloated. No wonder I was so bloated, but I really like eating them. And for me, I, you know, I just can't go and eat a bowl of dal. It just, that's an explosion, you know, of gas waiting to happen, but I have to have a tablespoon or two and just eat it slowly and, and build up, titrate it up, uh, rather than going and eating an, a whole lentil curry or something like that. Uh, so just, you know, for, for my listeners, you know, you, even when your numbers reduce, sometimes you just need to still go a little slow and work with what your body is dealing with, what the picture is. And if slow motility is part of your picture, uh, you know, work with that. Yeah. And I think one of the things I wanted to say is I think Dr. Pimentel with his studies has if I'm not mistaken, has, um, sorry, I haven't read them recently. I read them all before, but uh, found that fat might be not as good for methane. But in, in fact, I don't, I just don't clinically see that. That's one of those ones. Fat can stimulate actually bowel movements. So I, I don't know. I'm not sure what to make of all that, how, what we're all seeing sort of different. So that's why I just sort of feel like at this, this point in time, the standard SIBO diets are fine. Mm. What's the outlook like for a person with methane SIBO? Um, we know it's a more challenging SIBO to treat. Does it take longer than the hydrogen dominant person to uh, get a, to a point of you know, resolution or perhaps just a reduction in symptoms where they're happy? Do you see the, meth the methane person ever truly clear it? Or is it, are these people making up more of the chronic cases? What do you see? It's trickier to treat. It takes longer. Uh, I have seen people fully clear. Isn't that lovely? <laughs> Even chronic. I have seen it. Uh, but it is a lot trickier. One of the things that we'll see is we'll give the treatments, and you'll see the methane gas comes down on the retest, if you're doing retesting, and then the hydrogen goes up. And this is part of like the longer, more complicated, trickier treatment course and it's frustrating and you know what none of us know is how come the treatment just couldn't lower them both at the same time <laughs> but it doesn't work that way it seems like the treatment goes first to get rid of getting rid of the methanogens 
And, and so what happens is hydrogen gas is actually converted into methane gas. That's how methane is made. It takes four, uh, hyd- four hydrogens to make one methane. So when we get rid of the methanogens and less methane is being made now, you still, apparently we didn't get rid of the bugs that were, or the bacteria that were making the hydrogen, and now we see that. We don't see this in every case, but a lot. It's, it's common, very common. So then now you have to now go and do another course and focus on the hydrogen producing bacteria. And, and when we do this, typically we'll still keep a little bit of methanogen treatment in there just so that they don't come back and we just get rid of any extras that maybe we can't see or they're at low level, but you focus a bit more on the, on the hydrogen. You just do another treatment and then, you know, so it'll come down, it'll work, but weird stuff happens like that all the time. There's this thing that uh, Dr. Sandberg Lewis and I named pissed off methanogen syndrome, where now you've given a treatment and then you look in the retest is the methane's higher. Uh, Usually in a case like that, usually the symptoms aren't worse and we feel like we're seeing an artifact. We're in the middle of treating and we just keep treating. I just think we were in the middle and we weren't done. We need more time. And so if everything was going great, we might keep the same treatment. If it wasn't, we'll switch. We just keep treating and it'll come down. If the symptoms get worse, that's concerning. And then that gives pause and I'm not prepared to troubleshoot that right now but on this podcast but some sometimes that happens but anyway it is trickier I think it's because we're dealing with archaea and not a ton you know all this you know hundreds hundred years or so ever since antibiotics have been discovered the focus has been on treating bacteria but not archaea so that's new to us and uh, you know there is another there is another pharmaceutical I think that sometimes can help with that and that is um Alinea, which is not a zoxanide. Not always, but sometimes. It, it has been shown in studies to have some effect on archaea. So that's another option. But other, th- you know, other than these, these piddly studies here and there, we don't know what the best approach is. And we're learning more and more. Oh, there is also a, um, a drug in research with Dr. Pimentel's team. And it's a statin, like I believe it's lovastatin, that has been made to not absorb into the body and to be prolonged release. This statin has the ability to, all statins have the ability to inhibit the methane production. They inhibit an enzyme in the um, M. smithii. And this drug is not to market yet. It's called SYN10, S-Y-N-10. I'm sure it'll get a fancy name when it's ready. But so uh, people have experimented with red yeast rice because that's kind of has a statin effect. And in the beginning, Dr. Pimentel and even people from my team, we were, we were trying just regular statins, which, you know, have horrible side effects. Uh, and the effects were like, meh. And that's actually what allowed him to realize what he needed to do to make the drug more effective. And the red yeast rice, I mean, I had a couple people were like, yeah, we think it's working. And then it didn't. And very spotty. I mean, certainly somebody could try it if they wanted. But so anyway, it's trickier. It doesn't mean it won't ever go away. It just takes longer. Well, I think that's great to hear that you've had even chronic cases be able to be resolved and clear their SIBO and and feel better. Should we be looking for a one hundred percent resolution, or should is there a perhaps a a less um, firm piece that we should be going towards, perhaps seventy percent resolution? Uh, what's your your take on that? With all of the patients that you've seen, where where should we be aiming our sights? Okay, so there's this this prognosis piece where a third of patients are not chronic and they're going to be cleared and they're going to not relapse like ever and they're done. Like that's what everybody wants. They all want that. Uh, those people, 100% is reasonable for them. It's it, it's 
different. That's a different set of people. Then we have the two-thirds that are more chronic. Those people, I think we should aim for 80 to 90%. I like to aim for 90%, and the reason I like to aim for that is because often if we get somebody to 80%, and the way that is judged is by their report. It can be a little complicated because maybe one symptom is 100% better and another symptom is 50% better, and how do you decide? Whatever, you just it's the patient's decision on that, okay? So we talk about that. But uh, if somebody is 80% better and then we do one more treatment round, usually they'll get to 90%. Uh, how long will that last? I don't, it lasts a while and then you know the relapses can come. Most gastroenterologists are shooting for 80%. That is very realistic. I think you know 90% is a little bit more pie in the sky. <laughs> but I can often get people there with a lot of fiddling you know, another round and just all this fiddling. So 80 to 90%. And that's important to know because um, you have to remember that you have a, usually most people have an underlying cause that's present causing the SIBO or it would be gone, if, you know, and those underlying causes, which can be various, have symptoms of their own. So for instance, something like adhesions or something like endometriosis. Endometriosis will cause, you know, pain, abdominal pain, vomiting, diarrhea, whether a person has SIBO or they don't have SIBO. Those are the symptoms of endometriosis. So uh, we have to remember there's a cause there. And even just the slow motility, if, you know, we think the physiologic underlying cause is slow motility in the small intestine, that can just slow motility, even if you didn't have bacteria accumulated yet, let's say you don't have SIBO yet, you're, you're clear. Um, you know, you can have uh, bloating and burping and discomfort. If you want to hear Alison and I talk all about the underlying causes of SIBO, head to episode two, uh, way back in the early days of the Healthy Gut podcast, and we dive into that in a lot more detail. Episode two and three is where Alison joined me. As somebody that has achieved, I would say, sitting, hovering between 80 and 90% improvement from where I first started out, as someone that has SIBO today, my SIBO is back in, in full force if you look at the numbers, but symptomatically, I am so much better. And instead of being dogmatic about having this approach of I must never feel a digestive symptom ever again, and if I have anything, it means failure, I've changed my perception and my approach. Today, I acknowledge I have a chronic condition I have multiple underlying causes that are leading to me to have this bacterial overgrowth and archaea now overgrowth in my small intestine. And so it's not um, normal for me not to have any kind of symptom because I've got so many things going on. But for me, it's about how do I manage it? And if I have a little bit of bloating, a little bit of constipation, then I use that as my markers of what's going on. And I don't freak out over it now. And instead I say, thanks body for giving me that signal. I'm listening, I'm, I'm watching. What did I do in these last few days that might have led to a flare? Or is it time for me to, to go and speak to my naturopath and perhaps it's time to do another round of treatment? Um, but I don't approach it with fear like I used to. I used to be terrified of, of a single bloating episode because I used to think, oh my gosh, that means my SIBO's back. And today I just go, no, it's messaging from my body and I'm listening to it. Um, even with my SIBO, it's actually quite rare for me to get big, bad bloating episodes like I used to. 
And that's really interesting because my numbers are just what they were at the start, but my symptoms are so much better. And so you can live a wonderful life, even with SIBO. It does, SIBO doesn't need, mean it's kind of end of life diagnosis kind of thing. You don't have to freak out. And a relapse doesn't mean the end of the world either. And I used to think it did, but it doesn't. Yes, this is beautifully described. Attitude and the typical pattern we see in chronic SIBO with uh, continued treatment and management. Continued treatment and management over the long term creates exactly what you've just described. The relapses are farther apart. Uh, The person feels better and better and better. You know, there are relapses, so in those times. But the relapses are not ever, ever as bad as they were in the beginning. And so the, both the relapses are better and the in-between, the remission periods are better. And there's an overall positive trend upward. And we just see this over and over again. And it's because also I think people learn how to manage their chronic condition better and better and better. And the management techniques get fewer. You usually need less of them, less things. And it, and, it, and it all just becomes like second nature. And the acceptance is a huge part of it. If you're thinking, I need to not be chronic and I need to have this gone, you know, you might be fighting against your reality there. <laughs> so, uh, but the positive trend up is the absolute norm. Which is great to hear. Dr. Alison Seebecker, thank you for coming back to the Healthy Gut Podcast and sharing your knowledge and wisdom with us to talk all things methane. And uh, if you'd like to listen to our interview on hydrogen, make sure you tune into last week's episode, uh, which aired first. And then this was the part two of that discussion that Alison and I have had in Seattle uh, when we were here attending SIBOCon 2019. Um, Dr. Alison Seebecker, you've got a fantastic website, SIBO Info. And I encourage everybody to head there and sign up to your quarterly newsletter, which you put out. It's free to, to join up and it's such a wealth of information. Thank you, Rebecca. So fun to talk to you again. Thanks for coming on the show. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, episode 84 with Dr. Alison Seebecker. It's always a joy to interview her and learn more about overgrowth in the small intestine. If you would like the transcription from today's episode where we talk all about intestinal methanogen overgrowth, you can do that absolutely free just by becoming a member of the Healthy Gut Podcast. Head to thehealthygut.com forward slash podcast to sign up and you will get an email with the transcription from every episode in season three. And don't forget to leave a rating and review of the show. I absolutely love hearing from you and it really helps other people with SIBO or IMO know that this is the right podcast for them. I look forward to seeing you next week with our next episode. You've been listening to the Healthy Gut Podcast with your host, Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about the Healthy Gut or our podcast, head to thehealthygut.com forward slash podcast. We would like to thank Red Lemon Productions for the production and original music score of this podcast. To find out more about their services, head to redlemonproductions.com. The Healthy Gut Podcast is a production of The Healthy Gut. Thanks for listening. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.